This episode of the Ed Search Podcast is brought to you by ISTE GM AI Explorations, which provides world-class professional learning around artificial intelligence in K-12 education. Learn more and access their free hands-on AI projects for the classroom guides for elementary, secondary, elective, and computer science teachers at isteaiexplorations.org. That's isteaiexplorations.org. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Search Podcast. I'm Stephen Unum, the K-12 editor here. By now, you've probably heard something about the No Excuses Charter School movement. It's the high-discipline model favored by urban charter networks such as KIPP and Success Academy with high Black and Hispanic student populations. Students are often held to exacting discipline and conduct standards, which these schools claim is necessary to achieve the high test scores they're known for. By contrast, there's the progressive model, made famous by Waldorf and Montessori schools, but which has also been adapted for a wide range of mostly suburban schools populated by white students. This model takes a page straight from John Dewey. Here, students don't sit in orderly rows, hands folded on their desks, tracking speakers with their eyes as they might at a no-excuses school. Instead, their lives at school are much more self-directed and centered on the students as individuals. So, pretty different, right? But here's something you may not know. Around the country, these two models are working hard to train new teachers in their respective pedagogies through programs known as teacher residencies. These programs are intensive, much longer than typical teacher prep programs found in most colleges of education. Residencies are ultimately designed to increase diversity among the teaching force. But during a national reckoning on race in American society, their approaches have some pretty stark contrasts. Victoria Thiessen-Homer is a postdoctoral research fellow at Arizona State University's School of Social Transformation, who embedded herself in these two residency programs for her new book, Learning to Connect, Relationships, Race, and Teacher Education, which is based on research inspired by her own teaching experience in Los Angeles. She joins us to shed some light on the teacher residency trend, how it's grappling with race, and how these programs impact student-teacher relationships. So let's get started. Can you explain what is a teacher residency and how is it different than a traditional teacher education program? Sure. So teacher residencies are sort of the new reform du jour in teacher education. And essentially what they are is a program that's modeled off the medical residency model in that teachers are placed in practice for an entire year. And usually in other programs, traditional teacher education, you have 13 to 16 weeks of field work. But teacher residencies are a full year in the classroom with a guiding teacher. They're not responsible for being the sole teacher. Instead, these residents are slowly learning to take on more and more responsibility with the tutelage of this guiding teacher. So it's like an apprenticeship. And it's a really interesting model because what it does is recruit more racially diverse teachers into the classroom and prepare them through coursework that is really responsive to the whole field work instead of being separated from the coursework and then it essentially um it essentially pairs them with excellent mentors that's another huge piece of it and they're they're trained in these cohorts so they have this built-in support network 
of other teachers. And so the whole thing is very relationship focused, the cohorts, the mentor, the students. Um, and then we see from some of the data that's coming out about teacher residencies that they effectively retain more teachers than traditional programs. I think about 80% or more teachers stay after the after five years, which is pretty impressive. Um, and over time, they improve student achievement. So it's a really interesting model that we're seeing replicated across the country now. Um, so I, I think it has a lot of promise. Yeah, yeah. So you looked at a no excuses model and a progressive model when you were doing your field research, and and that's what the book is about. Uh, Are are these models that are mainly used by charter networks, and do these teachers end up filtering mainly into charter schools? So it's interesting because the no excuses model and the progressive model are really representative of larger trends in education more broadly. So if you think about the industrial beginnings of of education, that's the no excuses model. It's this mass producing of, of citizens to work in industry. Right. And and so that started, you know, basically when schools started. And then the progressive model came in around the 1900s, um, the late 1800s, early 1900s, driven by scholars like John Dewey, and was sort of a counter movement that was saying, no, we need to make school very experiential and place students at the center of the whole learning experience and honor their social and emotional development, um, as well as their academic development and that these two can be paired. And so you see these push and pull forces throughout educational history. Um, and, and whenever you see a trend toward test scores, like you see after the nation at risk or the no child left behind movement, you're gonna see more of the push toward the industrial type models, which you know the no child left behind movement is one of the primary motivations for the, the no excuses approach. And then whenever you see you know, people fighting for the whole child approach, which I saw Jamal Bowman advocating for in one of your previous podcasts, um, you're going to see more of the progressive style approach. And that's that's very different than, and I talk about progressivism as educational progressivism, not political progressivism. Some people get that confused, but it's really a movement in education toward experiential learning. And so um, right now what's driving progressivism is largely white parents who want a, what they consider a superior education for their children. And and so you see that represented in primarily charter schools um, and private schools that are, say, Montessori, Reggio Emilia, Waldorf type models, but also in, in high tech high and, and um, expeditionary learning type charter schools. And the no excuses movement is now represented primarily in urban areas, driven mostly by white folks who think they know what's best for children of color. But there's a lot of there's a lot of parents that are choosing these because they are demonstrating better test score outcomes for children, especially children of color from low income uh, backgrounds. And so there's this push toward the no excuses model or has been in the past. I think I think it's beginning to fall out of favor largely for some of the the sort of disciplinary focus of the school that's that's uh, been called into question as of late. But I think the test score motivation and what drives the way that we conceive of teacher-student relationships is very much prevalent across schools. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Are you do you know about how many uh, or the percentage of, of new teachers that enroll in these residencies, or, or how many teachers are are currently enrolled in residencies? 
Sure. So it's still a small percentage. I don't know the exact number, but there aren't there there aren't that many residencies out there. Some of the the most the major cities have residencies that are based in the city and that are feeding district schools like Boston Teacher Residency, which is sort of the the beginning of the public school teacher residency. Um, and you see that in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Memphis and um, Denver and Dallas and across the country you have teacher residencies, but there's still the minority when it comes to teacher education programs. And so most teacher education happens in university-based programs um, and particularly undergraduate university-based programs, whereas residencies are largely graduate programs. We'll have more with Victoria after the break. Did you know that artificial intelligence technologies are permeating nearly every field, from art to medicine to sports? Learn how to integrate AI education across grade levels and subject areas with the hands-on AI projects for the Classroom series from the ISTE and GM AI Explorations program. These guides provide elementary, secondary, elective, and computer science teachers with fun and innovative curricular resources about artificial intelligence. Each guide includes background information and four student-driven projects that can directly teach subject area standards in tandem with foundational understandings of what AI is, how it works, and how it impacts society. Participate in unplugged activities and create various authentic products. From designing chatbots to presentations to video games to demonstrate their learning about AI technologies. Learn more about the AI Explorations program and access these free guides at istiaiexplorations.org. That's istiaiexplorations.org. Now back to the episode. So what were your major findings when it came to how these two different programs were approaching issues of race, especially as you pointed out in your No Excuses chapter, um, race isn't really made a big deal in in the no excuse uh, preparation. So even though teachers are in schools with high proportions of students of color, they're not really getting um, much of a a cultural competency or a grounding in that. So it was a really interesting time to be studying this because right before I entered these different programs, um, Michael Brown and then Eric Garner were murdered by police. And this was the foundation of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so when I entered these programs, I got to see how they were responding to this very real social reckoning around race in our society. And as you said, the No Excuses program just sort of chose to ignore this comment on society right? Because one of their primary goals was to prepare students to navigate existing society and the school structure, which sort of mimicked that without questioning it. So they approached race through what I call a navigational perspective. And other scholars have explored this as well. So it's a phenomenon that's that's common, this navigational approach to, to essentially preparing students of color for society. And navigation essentially is preparing them with the tools to adopt what they call the culture of power, borrowing from Lisa Delpit's work. And that means in the way that they dress, in the way that they speak, in acquiring dominant cultures, um, writing style, you know, the canonical literature, math, etc. So they're, they're approaching this through a very um, navigational approach to society. And they even, in, in their program, prepared residents to practice having code switching, what they called code switching conversations with students, where they were 
telling these students, um, okay, so let's talk about this. You're sagging your pants. Now, that might be okay where you're from, but in the no excuses context and in society at large, that's going to make you look unprofessional. There was, there was this consciousness around that. And a really interesting thing happened in the program when they tried to have these conversations, and that was that some of the residents, and particularly the residents of color, sort of spoke out against it, saying, this feels kind of assimilationist. What are we doing here? And the program really didn't know how to respond to that um, and ended up sanctioning some of these residents for being what they considered unprofessional. Um, so there was, this, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on, but the result was that these teachers left the program believing that they needed to teach students to navigate society without questioning it. Whereas the progressive program approached race in a very exploratory way. So they were like, let's talk about race and racism and white privilege and police brutality and what's going on in society right now. And let's analyze the causes of racism. So they became more aware of, of what's going on and they became more critical of dominant culture, but they weren't given any tools for how to act on this or how to adequately serve students of color. And so the end result was that residents felt like they wanted to become change agents, but as one resident told me, they didn't know how to do so. And so when they graduate from this program, they largely go on to schools serving mostly white and affluent students where they feel most comfortable and bring their conversations and their awareness and their you know, critical thinking to that population of students. Yeah, so why why does this phenomenon exist, given what you just said? Why does this phenomenon exist of progressive residents graduating um, and going into mostly white schools and no-excuse residents going into mostly uh, schools with uh, students of color? So I think the No Excuses program is an obvious answer because they mandated that all of their teachers that graduated from this program go into No Excuses schools, which predominantly serve low-income students of color. So it was just, that was an explicit expectation from the beginning. The progressive program was a slightly more insidious phenomenon that took place because they didn't have any meaningful field work with racially diverse students. The school where they did their most influential work I call Xanadu in the book because it's so removed from public school realities um, that it feels like another world. And at the school, there's maybe one or two students of color in their classes, mostly um, Asian American students. And so they're not really experiencing what it means to work with and serve students of color adequately. And then there's no explicit mission. The mission is very subtle below the surface. And and the mission is subtly like, we need to think about things, analyze society, create change. But again, as I said, they don't know how to do that. And they don't really have a grounding and culturally responsive pedagogy or any framework that would help them to adequately serve students of color. And so when they leave, they just don't feel prepared to enter schools like that. So I'm not sure if this tracks with any experience that you had or if it's going to call for some speculation on your part. But what do you think you would see if you went into a no excuses school in an affluent suburb and a progressive school in an urban setting with um, a high proportion of students of color in it? That's a good question. And yes, it, it does It does involve some speculation, but I'm happy to engage with that. Um, I don't think affluent parents would put up with no excuses approach. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a parent 
I, I would not put my children in a no excuses school. I would not want them to be told to sit up straight, to track the speaker with their eyes. I would not want them policed. Um, it's interesting though, some of the residents in the no excuses program think about that and they're like, we're, we're being told that children of color can't handle the kind of hippie education that lets them think and, you know, but what are they missing with this approach? I mean, they're starting to analyze the fact that, that mostly affluent white parents aren't going to put up with this. They might put up with Catholic school that's really strict and has similar kinds of rules, right? Um, but that's with a very clear mission that's different. Um, or, you know, private boarding schools that have similar kinds of of rules, right? They might put up with that. Um, but we, we know that at these schools, students get away with a lot, right? These mostly white students really still get away with a lot. Whereas these no excuses schools, that's not going to happen. So I don't think a no excuses school could serve affluent, um, affluent, mostly white families in a way that they would put up with, um, at least, at least the policing aspect of it. Um, the progressive independent or the progressive model has actually worked in urban settings. So the coalition of essential schools, um, we saw that in New York city, there are other progressive models, um, in urban settings, but there also have been examples in which, you know, there was a, there was a, in the sort of the area where I was operating, there was a charter school that opened as a progressive model serving predominantly children of color. And they opened with very little in the way of rules and structure. And the school kind of fell apart and ended up becoming a no excuses school. And I think that was probably more a fault of how they approached the work than of the model itself. But you see some of these stories told and I think that influences what, what school leaders choose to implement, thinking that it's the model and not simply the way that it's created. But we have seen successful progressive schools in urban areas. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you get a sense that the graduates of both programs, when they when they left, did they feel um, they still like the model, that they were uh, kind of learning throughout the year, or had their perceptions changed at all? I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of how successful these graduates felt that their residencies were. That's a really good question, and it's something that I do find in the field. So usually what we understand is that from teacher education programs, teachers will go into the field and their school site often influences their whole perception of teaching. That that first teaching experience supplants their entire teacher education experience. That happens to, in some programs. But from these two residencies, the residents were actually going into the field and saying, there's some something wrong with my school if it doesn't go along with their residency model. So they were quicker to reject their school than they were their residency. And I'll give you one example. So one of the no excuses teachers went into this no excuses turnaround school. And if you know anything about turnaround schools, um, they are public schools that enter receivership and then another outside organization becomes their management organization. So this was a school in a city that their local public schools by no child left behind based on test scores had entered into receivership. So no excuses model came in, took over these schools. And so these children were basically subjected to the no excuses approach without their voluntary enrollment. In most charter schools, at least their parents are opting into this approach. In this, no, in this turnaround school, 
they were basically involuntary subjects. So this, this teacher from the No Excuses program enters the school and sees the model imposed on involuntary subjects. And she begins to think, these students are, are telling me the schools run like a jail and they're being treated like testing robots. It's inhuman, it's unempathetic. This is really problematic. And so she begins to reject some of her strict disciplinarian approach. She begins to become more um, relational with her students, begins to, to flaunt some of the, uh, or flout some of the rules, like, you know, the sitting up straight, the timer. She begins to abandon some of this in the classroom. Um, but at the end of the year, she comes to blame her school for this approach. She says, this school is doing it poorly. She acknowledges it's because the students aren't opting into this model. And, and she says, I can't be a part of this school. I'm gonna go to this other successful, no excuses charter school where this is, so this is imposed upon people who have elected into this approach. And she actually ends up taking pride in the fact that she's much more of a disciplinarian in the classroom at this new charter school and that it looks less oppressive in this space because it's people who have opted into it. So instead of critiquing the model and blaming the program for an approach that ends up looking inhumane, she ends up blaming the school. So, and I see this across the residents that I follow, any of them that enter into an incoherent environment, um, they're more likely to criticize their school than the program. Uh, so we are pretty much in the midst of a, of a national reckoning about race. Um, how do you expect these residencies to be changing over, over the next year or two as, as they grapple with this? So I think the no excuses model, as, as I mentioned before, is really thinking about trying to distance themselves from some of the more policing-esque uh, aspects of their approach. So they're trying to reduce sort of the, the images of students of color walking silently in the halls and, you know, getting merits and demerits based on their obedience in class, right? Um, I think they're trying to step away from that a little bit more. And I think they will probably start to focus more on the college preparatory aspects of their um, their program, which might end up looking a little bit more like some of the, the Catholic schools that we're seeing. But I think that the relational piece of it will still be strained because whenever you treat students like products or test scores, you're going to see teacher-student relationships being compromised in the process. So I don't think that it's going to fix the relational side of these programs. I think they'll still be instrumental. Um, and that's what I call the relationships in these no excuses schools. They're instrumental, they're a means to an end. So they, these teachers try to acquire professional relationship capital with their students through discrete moves. Um, and, and that is supposed to engender them to their students in positive ways so that they behave. So I think they might lean a little heavier on that approach, but it's sort of a how to win friends and influence people kind of approach. Um, and so I think that's gonna respond. I think progressive schools are gonna have to really take a look at their storied history because progressive schools have a history of, of their own kind of insidious racial practices where these white parents are essentially exiting the public school, you know, public school environment and, and taking their students away from black and brown children. So I think 
I think progressive schools are going to need to take a hard look at their history of exclusionary practices. And I think they're going to need to find ways to better serve children of color. And that probably also means putting in place practices that will support children of color, as opposed to just assuming that everybody knows the culture of power, right? Because they were born in it. You have to teach students um, that this is a thing, but you can also teach it through a critical way. Like, this is a thing, but why is this a thing? Let's, let's explore and examine that and find ways to through activism um, to make change more broadly. So I think progressive schools are gonna have to step up. Um, we'll, we'll see if they do. We'll see if they do. I don't, I don't know. Earlier, you mentioned that you started this work with a hypothesis about relationships. Um, how did that turn out? I think that, you know, based on my findings, these residencies had incredibly powerful effects on the relational practice of their graduates. The, the no excuses teachers went into the field and employed the moves that they had learned to call parents, um, to, to remember little things about a student and integrate those in conversations the student felt seen, to have one-on-one -on -one rebuilding conversations with students after they'd kicked them out of their class. These very discreet moves, these teachers were using them in the field very faithfully. And in the no excuse or in the progressive program, the teachers were entering the field and they were writing their children handwritten birthday cards. Every, every like every single student got one of these. They were talking to students before, after school, um, during passing periods about their life. They were asking them questions. Their assignments revolved around the students. So they were they were replying, um, applying this reciprocal approach to relationships, what I call reciprocal, because it revolves around the student and then teachers then respond to what they learn about students. So they were very, very faithfully implementing these approaches. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because both programs were highly coherent. So they had their idea, their vision, their mission, and everything mapped back to that. Two, because of the residency model. So they were learning in the classroom how to implement this. And that became part of their practice. So when they went into the fields, they continued to implement this. Um, and, and three, because they had these, these other peers around them who were doing the same thing and were sharing resources and supporting them in these meaningful ways. So it was replicating. They were helping each other to continue this work. So I think residency programs are actually really powerful forces for relational work, but with great power comes great responsibility. Right? So we need to approach this work really intentionally because if we don't, we're going to get stuck with instrumental relationships. Or if the program ignores relationships entirely, that's sending its own message, right? that they're not important. So I think residencies are a really powerful option, but we need to be careful. Um, so now that the book is out, what's, what's next for you? So I'm currently actually studying um, whether it would be feasible, I live in Phoenix, um, so I'm studying whether it would be feasible to create a Phoenix teacher residency. So Phoenix is my home. I was born and raised here and we have the probably the greatest teacher crisis in the nation. We have a huge teacher shortage. One in four classes is occupied by a substitute teacher, permanent sub. Um, and teaching is considered less desirable here than any other state in the nation. So we need programs that are going to recruit teachers, and we need more racially diverse teachers here, and we need more equity-focused teacher education programs as well, and we need, we need programs that support retention. So I need to figure out through this study that I'm, I just got a, a grant to fund um, whether we have the infrastructure 
and financial support in a state that has one of the lowest per pupil education funding rates in the nation, and whether we have the qualified candidates who actually want to pursue teaching through this this means. So that's what the study is doing, and I hope it will prove feasible, but who knows? So that's that's next on my agenda. What kind of model would you use for a teacher residency? I think it would probably... Um, it would be a blend, but it would probably err more on the side of, you know, the very reciprocal relationships, equity-focused uh, fieldwork in low-income, um, racially diverse schools, uh, you know, really focusing on families and what they need. Um, so I think it would be much more focused on on serving the students that are before us and how do we do that effectively and we'll start from that premise but I have to figure out if it's feasible before we go on designing the program itself. Thank you so much Victoria for uh, joining us. No problem thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Each week we feature real conversations like this one so please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. We've actually been moving up the podcast rankings in recent weeks thanks to your support. So if you haven't subscribed or given a rating, please, please take a moment to do so if you can. My gratitude to Victoria for sharing her time and expertise, and thanks to everyone out there for listening. This episode was edited by me, Stephen Unu, and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Till then. <laughs>